Here's the thought I had. Uh, doesn't matter whether you're watching the, the Jesus, whether my kids are like watching the Jesus film or Barney. If the if the the volume's turned up too loud, they really can't hear anything I say. You know, and I think in our lives, whether we're watching the Jesus film or Barney, if if there's too much noise, then we can't really hear what God's saying. And so one of the things I think we have to realize as Christians is that we're not. We ought not to kind of pattern our lives so that it's just from one distraction, one noise to the next, and we never get a chance to hear God. I think the whole idea of the Sabbath was that we would weekly, in a rhythm, kind of be able to step back and actually hear what God's saying to us. And so this morning, hopefully this isn't just noise, and uh, you wake up an hour and a half later, and, and it's just on with the rest of the day. Um, but hopefully, just like when we're focusing on a, a beautiful piano song, um, we can hear distinctly um, something and be able to focus on it. So let's just take a brief minute and we'll open in prayer. Father God, we just commit this morning to you. Uh, whatever we could hear from you would be wiser, grander, and more glorious than I think anything we could come up with on our own. So it'll uh, let our own schemes and let our own words and let our own even desires and let the noise around us kind of uh, die off, Father. That we might hear clearly in Christ's name. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to John. Uh, we're in John chapter 11. For several weeks, we were uh, dealing with the man born blind, and then we moved into a passage on the raising of Lazarus, and that precipitates kind of this historical narrative piece, beginning in verse 45. Again, John chapter 11, verse 45, and I'm just going to read it for you, and then we'll try and see what we can learn from it. But it says this, after Jesus had raised Lazarus, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and who had seen what Jesus did, they put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And this would have been in Jerusalem, and this would have kind of been the, the ruling, almost political council. And it would have been largely that the chief priest there is, is kind of what was called the Sadducees. And this would have dominated the Sanhedrin. And these would have been a little bit more political than the Pharisees. They would have been a little bit more liberal in some sense, uh, a little bit more uh, just in Jerusalem than some of the Pharisees who were in the countryside. And they would have been very keen to understanding how what is happening around them would affect the larger political realities. Does that make sense? And so they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and this is what was said. What are we accomplishing they asked. Here is a man performing many miraculous signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And the word place there, um, going back to the Old Testament, is kind of a phrase for the temple. So what they're really saying here is we're, we're meeting, and this is our place, the temple right here in Jerusalem, and if all these people start following this guy who's kind of radical, this delicate political alliance in some sense that we have with the Romans is going to evaporate. They're going to send in a legion 
And typically what would happen is they're just going to knock it all down. Uh, They're going to squash kind of what they see as a rebellious movement. And the first thing they're going to do is level the thing that holds this ethnic group together, which is the temple. They're going to burn it. They're going to raise it. It's what happened in AD 70. So their fears actually um, several decades later come true that this delicate balance, if it really gets destabilized, will cause the Romans to come in. And they're going to level the temple, our place, and kind of in a sense, therefore, destroy our nation. So what are we accomplishing? Um, Our goal of peace and stability and people following us and looking to us and having harmony is not working. This guy, Jesus, is kind of outmaneuvering us or outgaining on us. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he says these guys. They're, they're asking the question, uh, what are we accomplishing? Man, how do we employ better tactics, better strategies? How do we... Uh, bringing a business consultant so that he can help us figure out how you deal with a radical Jewish peasant from the, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, you guys are asking the wrong question. He says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only, for that, uh, not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that, that day on, they plotted to take his life, Jesus' life. And then it kind of continues on. It says, therefore, Jesus, because of this, um, he finds out about this. He no longer moved about publicly. He removed himself from open-air public ministry among the Jews, and instead he withdrew to a region near the desert. And so he kind of skirts off on the side. And then we're going to get a transition at the end of chapter 11 here, going into chapter 12. And the whole book of John kind of hinges right at this point, where up until now it's been kind of telling the story of Jesus. From, from chapter 12 all the way to the end, it's basically the last week of Jesus' life. Half of the gospel of John essentially is devoted to the last week of Jesus' ministry. And that hinge kind of comes at the end of chapter 11. So this... this uh, passage, I was looking at it on vacation, and I was just like, sweet, um, what do I talk about with that? Like, it, it's a cool little story, you know, it's like five minutes and anecdotal, and but there's nothing like preachy in it. It's just this historical narrative. And it was kind of interesting, as I dwelt on it more and more, I, I really came to love this passage, and you'll see why. But in scripture, there are what you would call explicit messages. Um don't do this, don't do that. Paul is is preached a lot in churches, Paul's letters, because they're very explicit. The message is right on the surface. Paul is is explaining himself very clearly. This is what you should do or not do. This is the message I have for you. You can't miss what I'm saying. Uh, Then there are messages in Scripture that are implicit. And implicit messages a lot of times have to do with, uh, with historical narrative we see by example almost. And this is one of those passages that's implicit. We learn a lot from it by seeing what's implied in the text. And instead of it being by good example, it's actually by bad example. We learn by bad example. Now here's the funny thing about that. Most of what I've really learned that I I consider valuable is, and I don't know, it might be the same for you. I don't know if, if this, it might be the way God planned it or not, but 
a lot of the mentors in my life or the churches in my life and whatnot, I've learned the most by seeing what they did wrong. I mean, have you ever had that experience? Like you see something and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do it that way. Uh, it's, so it's an interesting thing. I think when, when we see something wrong, it hits us in the gut differently than just when everything's cheery. And so we learn from it, and we learn how to modify what we do. And I think wisdom learns from good examples and bad. This is one of those passages where we learn from bad examples. So here's the deal. Let me try and frame it for you, the big picture, the context. Uh, I gave a wedding yesterday. I was at a wedding, beautiful wedding ceremony. And, and the message that I basically gave and at a wedding, uh, you know, it's about a 10-minute message. I'm not an hour-long guy at a wedding because no one's there for me. <laughs> They're all there for the bride, right? It's her day. Um, so the message I gave was, was uh, I, I, it was really interesting. I, I told a couple marriage jokes at the beginning of it, and people, I think where people were like, what? What are you doing? It's a wedding. Like, why are you telling marriage jokes? And the whole idea was God designed things to be good. He did. The things he designed when they come together, um, they come together and they're good. Now, those things become... Uh, uh, frequent. Sunsets are frequent. Um, smiles are frequent. Um, getting together with a friend or having family, it becomes very frequent. And when things are frequent, when they're in your life a lot, then they become common. When things become common, then we begin to be able to joke about them and, and kind of poke fun. And marriage is one of those things that God created in the book of Genesis. He created it, he created it to be good. This was the design. In some sense, when you look at Paul t- uh, talking about, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and died for the church and will someday, you know, kind of call her in this, this wedding ceremony um, when we get to heaven that in some sense marriage prefigures God's whole plan of what's going on. It's, it's his design and it's good, right? Yet it's common uh, and therefore, we begin to joke about it, and we lose sight of the fact that it's really, really good. Because, you know, most wedding jokes, you know, poke at it. And so I kind of started there, and I said, you know, it's common. We take it for granted. We, we make fun of it. But let me show you how it's good. And when good things happen, God kind of designed it that at those times we would celebrate. We'd celebrate. The, the festivals in the, in the Jewish calendar were all around these good things. When the harvest comes in, or or different things like that. And, and weddings were one of these times that was celebrated, like everything kind of comes together the way it's supposed to be, and they celebrate it. And it's, I think one of the reasons Jesus turned water into wine, into wedding, is because this is a time to celebrate, and it's a good thing. The, the prodigal son passage is a fascinating one. You remember um, God is kind of like the father. The father symbolizes God in that passage. And so here comes the son back, and the older son's a little bit peeved because uh, the father kills the, the, the golden calf. The father kills the fattened calf. They're going to have this big party, and it's like expensive, like a wedding, right? And the older son's like, what gives? Like, you haven't spent that kind of money on me. And, and the father's like, we had to celebrate. It was necessary. The word is necessary. It was necessary that we celebrate. Why? Because that, that son was gone, and now he's back, and he's alive to us. And, and it's coming together the way it was supposed to be. It's good, and when good happens, we celebrate. It's necessary. Right? So this is the kind of the idea I gave at this wedding. Um, guess what, though? Those days where we, like, 
get to celebrate, where it all comes together for good, those days are like few and far between. And in between them are days where we deal with the reality of a fallen world where it's really messy and God is really, really mysterious. And it's not really clear and it's not really easy. And so this passage here, I think, speaks directly to that. What happens when we're caught in the middle of circumstances that are so confusing and so difficult and we don't know what to do um, and we're trying to control events bigger than ourselves and it's not the times we get to celebrate, it's the times we panic sometimes. Does that make sense? So it's an interesting thing. So I want to point out two main things to you and then we'll move on from there. The first thing though comes from these two verses. I'm going to read them again. Kim's going to put them up on the screen here. But uh, then one of them named Caiaphas. Now interesting thing about Caiaphas is the Jewish historian Josephus um, several hundred years later, wrote that Caiaphas was like high priest for 18 years. Now, God designed it that the, the high priest would be high priest for life. The Romans came in and kind of controlled it. So they said, we get to like have veto power um, over high priest, and we get to do it once a year. So they, on a yearly basis, would have to kind of approve the high priest. So Josephus tells us Caiaphas was high priest for 18 years, which tells you what? He's pretty good at, at working between the Jewish culture and the Romans. Right? I mean, he was a pretty good political guy making it all work. Um, and he was the guy the Romans let be there year after year. And he was the guy that was there in the year that this happened. And so Caiaphas was there and he says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And then it goes on to this. And it's one of these things that's called... Um, uh, a Johannine irony, which is basically fancy talk for saying that in the Gospel of John, um, they always refer to him as Johannine, which is actually like Johannes is a Dutch name. It's my dad's name. So I, I don't think this has anything to do with Holland or Dutch, but somehow they take this name, you know, in the fancy talk, and they always refer to John as Johannine. Um, like, but Johannine irony, um, it's John uses a lot of irony. Okay? And this is one of those things. He's saying the high priest is like, man, um, we're going to destabilize this whole thing and everyone's going to lose out. It's better that one guy die um, for the whole nation than the, the whole nation perish. And John, in, in, in other texts, like other versions of the Bible, the, the irony really comes out better. But it goes on and says, this high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only that, but um, for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. So from that, that day on, they plotted to take his life. And the irony here is, He's kind of prophesying, and so God is kind of like doing something funny, and the joke's on him. Hey, it's better that one man die, and then at a spiritual level, God's kind of saying, hey, joke's on you, one man's going to die for the whole nation, but not the way you think. <laughs> I've, my whole plan is that this guy die, but not so that it keeps the political peace, but so that I could really redeem and bring to myself all these, these lost sheep, the lost children of Israel the ones that I want to know me better. So there's this kind of irony. So the first thought I had was um, a lot of times we're, um, when we're praying and talking with God, we're talking about the same story, but we're having a different conversation. We're, we're in the same story. Caiaphas is here talking about Jesus needing to die. God is over here talking about Jesus needs to die, but they're having a different conversation. 
Does that make sense? I think that happens so often. So I want to kind of try and illustrate how I think that goes. We start here with circumstance. Big on this paper. All right. And we go over here to prayer. We start with the context of um, God. I mean, people come together, this, this Sanhedrin meets, and they're praying, and some of them are probably fasting, and, and they're getting wise counsel back and forth. I mean, they're trying to do what groups of people do when, when they're like, man, these circumstances are huge. Boards do that with big organizations, right? And so they wrestle, and they try and come up with wisdom, and, and it's these circumstances give rise to these prayers. God, what do we do, and how are you going to fix this? Now, the interesting thing is, that's not where God starts. God starts with himself and then speaks back this way. So we start, oh no, the Romans. And we look to God. God doesn't start with the Romans. God says, I am doing and your circumstance will be solved. But it's not the circumstance that you're most worried about. I'm seeing a real need, not a felt need. I don't see the Romans. I see my plan of salvation. I don't see 50 years or 100 years or even your nation. I see all the people in all eternity. And we start here. God starts with himself. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is kind of funny. Rarely do two people start a conversation in the exact same place. Have you ever had that happen? You're talking with someone, and then all of a sudden you say the same thing at the same time. You're like, oh, isn't there like a little game or like the first one that says the next thing gets to Starbucks or something like that? I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about? Like you've had it happen like three times in your life that you're there with someone and all of a sudden two people say the exact same thing. Really rare. What does that tell you? It tells you this. When we start the conversation with God, it's probably not the same place where God would start the conversation. It's rare that two people start the conversation in the same place. And so... God starts at one place, we start at another place. And so when we're always starting the conversation, we're always trying to dictate the communication. Have you ever met that extreme extrovert that, that can't listen at all, <laughs> right? So when they run out of something someone else is about to start, they can't let that happen, so they've got to come up with something else right then. And they just, they're always starting and no one else is talking. It's just, right? We, we have a phrase for that. You're talking over the top of everybody. You're stepping all over the conversation. You're talking over the top of everybody. And we talk over the top of God all the time. I think we've trained ourselves in the Christian world with a view of prayer that always has the conversation starting from us and with us. And we talk over the top of God all the time. Now, so the interesting thing here, and I wrote down the phrase because I'm not good at remembering phrases, just ideas. But I think I would put it this way. Um, most of the things we talk to God about, we know the answer already. What God was doing, he didn't just say in that meeting. He'd been saying it with Jesus' public ministry all along. Jesus was saying, hey, you guys are the, the leaders of Israel. Don't you know this? It is written. And then he says... Um, and look at the miracles I'm doing and believe on this. They testify to who I am. 
God is giving testimony to who I am through these miracles and through the things. The things I'm doing were prophesied about. John the Baptist came to herald me. And he trips up the, the religious leaders at one point by saying, did John the Baptist come from God or not? If he did, then you've got to understand this is prophecy. If he didn't, then you're just refusing to see anything that has the marks of God on it because it didn't originate with you. And so there's this real thing. Are you willing to accept what starts with God, comes from God, that God is planning, and we're not too good at that? Um, we want to know an answer, but the problem is we know the answer already. So the message is out there. It's in the air, yet we talk all over the top of God. So there's another way of saying this, um, a political way, because the sermon title for today is The Danger of Caring Too Much About Politics, not to be confused with anything going on in America right now, but um, the danger of caring too much about politics, which means circumstances that are outside of us that have to do with a broad category of people, right? What these, these leaders were doing. So in the, in the theme of political stuff, what we do is we filibuster God. God's trying to do something. You know what a filibuster is? You get up there and like read from the phone book or something. You just kill time. And, and then when like you've killed enough time, you've kind of like killed what was going on and then you get to start something new or change the direction. And so like we filibuster God. We, t- ah, we put our fingers in our ears. I don't like what I'm hearing. And we just go on and on and on. We filibuster God. We talk all over the top of the conversation. And then here's what we do when we're done filibustering God. We hide behind faith. I was talking to someone um, this week about this, but it's a fascinating thing we do. God's already talking to us, trying to get us to hear what he's saying about our real needs, not our felt needs. We talk all over the top of it. We reach a stalemate where we're not going to hear what God's saying. And then we finally choose to do what we want to do, which is what the Sanhedrin kind of eventually does. Well, let's just kill Jesus. It solves our problem. We finally choose to do what we want to do, not what God's been saying. And here's where we go with this really fascinating thing. We hide behind faith. We hide behind. So faith would be, real faith, capital F, would be listening to what God's saying. It's really hard to hear because we don't want to hear it. And it requires a lot from us to do it, right? To to follow and to listen. That's real faith. We don't want it, so we kind of shout, put our fingers in our ears, and... Then, when we finally decide to act, we say, okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to trust God. So, man, I, uh, there's there's a lot of examples I want to use, but it it almost hits too close to home. But in a vague sense, it's like, man, like, I feel like I should uh, give all I have to the poor or move overseas or whatever, but look at all these consequences that would come from it. Obviously, I can't do that. So I'm going to do this. And then you start telling your friends, yeah, we're really trusting God too. So you hide behind faith. We're really spiritual. Look what we've decided to do. And we're trusting that God will bless this. But we've already rejected what God really called us to. So there's a real art form to hearing what you've already heard. To listening to what God's already said. We filibuster God and then we hide behind faith in and we need to listen to what we've already heard. If you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll read this really quick. I want to try and illustrate this quickly. 
But First Peter three, this is a marriage passage, right? And and uh, in verse seven, Peter talks specifically to husbands. He says, "Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives." First Peter three seven, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. They're tender, they're valuable, they're precious. Nurture them. And listen to what he says at the end. You do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So here's how this goes. Here's the guy right here. God, I need help with my career. Love your wife. God, I really need help like with my career. My job is in turmoil. Stop taking it out on your wife. God, I am lost and confused. I need help with my career. Not only is your wife lost and confused, but she needs to know you love her. And we keep, guys keep saying this, God, answer that prayer. And God is saying, I'm not going to answer that. I've got something bigger that I'm saying to you and you're not listening to me. I have entrusted this wife to you. Take care of her. You do that well, then I will come alongside and bless you. But I'm not going to act until you listen. So there's the art of hearing what we've already heard. C.S. Lewis was asked by a driver one time towards the end of his life. He would get in the car. He never drove. C.S. Lewis, his whole life, he never drove. Took trains. He walked, all that stuff, but never drove. And he was asked by a guy. He would get in the car and pray specifically for all these people. And he would go through and just pour over prayer. And he was asked, how do you pray like that? Why do you pray like that? And he just, what do you mean? It's a strange question. He goes, well, I mean, you, you pour so much energy and you do that. And, and why and how? And C.S. Lewis said, well, it's really simple. I think when God says something in Scripture that he actually means it. You know, when Jesus says treat people like this, I think he actually means it. I, I'm supposed to treat people like When he says pray for people, I think he actually means it. It's kind of like a novel concept, but what C.S. Lewis was saying was, God has already said a lot to us. And if we don't listen to the conversation why would God listen to what we're trying to say to him when we step all over what's already being said? There's an art to, to hearing what we've already heard. So a lot of times we find ourselves with God in the same story, but there's two conversations going on. And we've got to learn to be able to listen and take serious what God has already said and not just push that aside, hide behind faith, do what we're going to do already. Um, second thing is interesting, Caiaphas, and we'll put that verse back up there. But Caiaphas um, has this fascinating thing, and I kind of tried to make it bigger, but he says, uh, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? This is the danger of caring too much about politics. We try to use our power and control to change circumstances that we don't think are good. This happens so much more often than what we realize. He's saying the end justifies the means. And this guy should die because the greatest number of people are going to live. Do you know what was at the heart of the Inquisition? Any idea? For hundreds of years, is, is thousands of people were burned at the stake. It was that same phrase. The Inquisition was begun because heresy began to creep up. 
Um, and then it really took speed with the printing press. And so the church kind of came together and said, if, hair, if, if murder is bad, right? Murder is bad, you kill somebody, what's the penalty for murder? You, you take a life, you lose your life. Heresy comes in and sows seeds, was the thinking, and heresy would kill a soul. It would cause someone to miss the message of salvation, to believe something false, and they would lose salvation for it. And so not only do they lose their life of 60 years, but heresy kills a soul for eternity. And so the church kind of came around, and they're like, wow, that's worse than murder. And if, if murder has a death penalty associated with it, then how much more so should killing a soul carry the death penalty? And so the Inquisition came and said, we're going to find where heresy is. And when we find it, it's, and they took John 15, where the dead branches that don't bear fruit are gathered up and then burned. So your dead branch doesn't bear fruit, and we're going to gather up, and they burned at the stake, these people guilty of, this is the Inquisition, this is the church. What was the motive? The motive, here's the funny thing. The motive was good. The essence of religious or spiritual abuse is having good motives but being wrong. John Calvin, the reformer, even signed off on somebody to be thrown out of a boat in the middle of the river because they came teaching baptism. And, and Calvin warned him, don't come to my town. He came to his town. Calvin agreed to them, taking out in the middle of the river, chaining him up, throwing him over the boat, and baptizing him for eternity. Killing him. Capital punishment for heresy. So this wasn't just the Catholic Church, the Inquisition. This was a way of acting on realities that seemed destructive to the whole and making decisions, political decisions, that we look at now and we're like, really? But the motives in those, in those moments were good. And we have to realize something. That's, that's the, art, the art of being humble is realizing we can have good motives but still be wrong. We walk like this, God, even with my best motives and my best intentions and using all the wisdom I can muster, I can still kill God. The irony of this passage blows me away. Men coming, trying to protect their nation and their families and their children and the people of God, praying and wrestling and pooling wisdom. And you know what they do? The solution they come up with is to kill God. God, you got to help us. Our nation is in peril. And at the end of the day, they kill God. So this is the formula that happens there. Start with circumstances. We wrestle with it. And then they kill the answer to the prayer that they were asking. God starts here. And he moves over and then solves the circumstances. So we take a bad situation... And in our human failings, we make it worse. And we can sometimes actually kill the answer. And God says, Romans 8, 28, um, I work all things. For good. 
What's the good he's talking about? And this is why we miss it so often. Is it's not that your career or your job or your investment or your dreams or your hobby or your whatever else will be put together exactly the way you want it. The circumstance God brings about is um, that nothing can separate you from my love. Nothing can separate. What is the supreme picture of heaven? It's unity. Heaven is all about one thing, and that's unity, coming together like the Trinity in this relationship, community. Jesus prays in John 17, his last prayer, it's like, God, make them one. Because this whole thing is aimed at one day, all of us coming together in unity, right? So God, when he acts, is building the supreme good, which is that nothing can separate us from God. So when God moves with Jesus, I work all things for good. Christ dies for the whole nation. Same circumstance you were seeing, but not so that a political reality will win the day, but so that when he dies, my spirit can be in you. And when my spirit is in you, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I am taking steps to guarantee our relationship in unity, that your place in the family, that you're an heir of the Father. Um, man, it's a, diff- it's a totally different fa- formula. We take bad things, and when we try to control them, we often make them worse. God works all things for good. His circumstances look a lot different than ours. We need to listen more. Um, there's this uh, guy, Samuel Rutherford. He uh, lived, he was a contemporary of John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And at that time, he got thrown in jail for preaching the Protestant gospel. And he got thrown in jail. And because of that, we have this fascinating book, The Letters of Samuel Rutherford, because he was in jail. And so all he, all he wrote was all these letters. And this is kind of weird language. And I don't have it on the screen, so I want you to really listen to what he says. But there's a phrase in here we're going to pick up on. But um, this is what he says in this letter. And what he's talking about is that often when we follow Christ, the circumstance that comes from that is not the pleasant circumstance I think we all long for. Listen to what he says. But oh, how many of us would have Christ divided into two halves that we might take the half of him only, the half that brings joy and happiness and pleasure. We take his office, Jesus and salvation, but Lord is a cumbersome word. And to obey and work out our own salvation and to perfect holiness is the cumbersome and stormy north side of Christ. And that we eschew and shift. So he's saying there's two sides of Christ. There's the one where we sit here like this and we love to come to church and sing praise songs and receive salvation where, where Jesus comes in and works out our salvation for us. And it's amazing grace. But then there's this other side where we're on our knees like the psalmist crying out about the life circumstances and the difficult realities of following Christ and it's hard but we have to follow because Christ is Lord and where he leads we go. And Rutherford calls this, and I love it, the stormy north side of Christ. Now in Bend, we all, you, know, you ought to know what a north side of a mountain is, right? It's the side that never gets the sun. 
It's the side that's gnarly. It's the side that if you get caught on in the winter when the blizzard comes, you die. It's, it's just that radical, extreme face of something. And Rutherford says we don't like that face where we have to call Jesus Lord, and we don't get to control our circumstances, but we walk through despite the circumstances. He says that's hard to take. And so the first thing is we, we talk about the same story as God, but we often have a different conversation. And the second thing is we care too much sometimes about politics. And we use our control and our power and our influence and our money to try to solve circumstances that sometimes God has a different plan for them than what we think. If I could frame it all in, in one little, little phrase, I would do it this way. We always think about the win. God thinks about his will. Jesus prayed, um, not my will be done, but yours, God, your will be done. When we go to prayer, we have a win in mind. Man, if everything works in my favor, this is what it would look like. And we pray to that so often. God, do this. Bring me the win. God doesn't answer prayer for our win. He answers the prayers that bring about his will. And his will often involves gnarly circumstances. I don't always give application, um, and here, here's why real quick. Application is kind of like, here's the main point, and, and here's three little things you can go do about it, right? Um, I don't give application for this reason. I think my whole goal in getting up on a Sunday and teaching is simply this, conversion. I, I get up on a Sunday morning, and my, my only heart cry is that somehow we can get to the heart of people and flip it to where... Um, you die to self. Bonhoeffer says when, when Christ bids a man come, he bids him come and die. And you hear me say that a lot, but we have to choose to die to ourself where we don't get our own will and our own set of circumstances we want, but we choose to follow God through Jesus Christ at all costs. So I aim at that every single week. Getting all the way to the heart and flipping that. I call it conversion. And here's why I don't do application, because if that really happens, application in a lot of ways is meaningless. If you really want to be a car, buy a car, um, you're going to figure out which car. You're not going to come talk to me. I've never had someone come to me and go, hey, Ken, can you give me some spiritual wisdom on which car I should buy? If you really want to work out and get in shape, you know how to do that. I mean, seriously, we all know. I mean, there's 20 places in town, and we drive by them going like this. If you really want to get in shape... You, you know to just stop eating the Big Macs, right? You saw Fast Food Nation, right? And we, you know how to do it. If you really want to learn how to play golf, you know how to do it. You commit to it. You find the people who are good at it, and you let them teach you, and then you practice that. If you really want to get good at your relationship with God, if, if you really want to grow, you don't need me. I come up here to try to get you to really want to. That's all I care about, is conversion. So I told the staff a couple months ago, I, my, new, my new title unofficially is internal outreach pastor. I come on Sundays and try to convert the people in my church to really following Jesus Christ. I'm an internal outreach pastor. And, I'm, and I take that very serious. I had someone say to me recently, like, you say the same thing, like, three out of every four weeks. And I was like, really? Um, I'm not doing a good enough job then because I try to say it four out of every four weeks. 
you know. Um, but so I don't like just giving the simple little things because I don't always think you need it. This is a pretty abstract message, so I want to break it down to three things, and guess what? Um, the principles are as abstract and hard as the message was, so it's not going to be that helpful. But um, here's, here's the first thing, and, and it's simply this. If we really want to hear what we've already heard, to really let God dictate the conversation, here's three things. The first thing is we need to be humble. You could be wrong even with the best of intentions. You could be wrong even when you know you're right. What do you do when God's on the other team? I don't think it's a question we don't ask ourselves that often. Like, you see a football game, this guy's praying, that guy's praying, they're both praying for the win. Guess what? What do you do sometimes in life when God's on the other team? It's a big problem if all you care about is the win. Right? It's not a problem at all if you care about God's will. We need to be humble. Uh, Gideon's an interesting example to me. I think everyone looks at him like lack of faith. Gideon's the guy that came and threw out the fleece and says, God, if you're really talking to me, do this. God, God says yes, and Gideon's like, okay. One more time, God. Um, let me flip it over. We'll make it even harder. If you're really talking to me, come and do this. And we look at that and we're like, it's a lack of faith. And, and what we don't realize is it's actually a lot of faith. The reason God was talking to Gideon in the first place is because he was a man of faith. What God was asking Gideon to do was go up against the biggest army in his world and go right at him, sure, sure, sure death. Sure, and, and Gideon just was kind of like, okay, God, I'm willing to do what you want, but I need to know with clarity. Gideon putting the thing out for the second time wasn't about a lack of faith. It was about being humble enough to say, I want to really make sure I'm hearing you right. And when circumstances are really bad, I think, and we have humility, it's not a lack of faith to kind of put it back on God and say, God, I'm willing to follow your will, but boy, sometimes you ask me to die. Like to go right up into the face of it, and I just need clarity. And that's a humility that says we don't always get it the first time, we don't always get it clearly, but we're willing to go back to God humbly and say, please lead, please talk, please break it down to like second grade reading level. So humility is the first thing. The second thing is waiting on the Lord. You know, the psalmist wrestled with God in prayer. Wrestled about big situations that didn't have quick fixes. And he wrestled with God in prayer. And in Psalm 23, it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, um, you are with me. It doesn't say, before I get into the valley of the shadow of death, you like cut it off at the past and spare me the bad circumstances. It doesn't say, when I cry uncle in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, you swoop in and rescue me. It says, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when we do that, God will be with us. It means that there are circumstances that will not change, that we go through anyway, and it's God's will for us. James talks about this, and he says, consider your trials pure joy. Consider your bankruptcy pure joy. Consider the fact that your kid's walking away from the Lord. Aye. Pure joy. Why? Because God's bigger than that dead end circumstance. And God can redeem it. 
And that circumstance that's so far beyond your control is something that God can use and work in and glorify himself. And you'll realize, man, like he can do things that I can't even touch. And there is an endurance and a perseverance that comes from that. James doesn't just say, be sadistic. And when you have pain, consider it joy. He says, consider it joy. Why? Because it tests your faith, right? When you're going through bankruptcy, I mean, I, I had this situation yesterday, like I was in um, TJ Maxx and I saw this shirt for $9 that I liked and my wife told me I couldn't get it. Boy, I mean, it seems simple, but that really torqued me. I'm like, my finances are so bad that I can't even buy a $9 shirt in TJ Maxx. I'm like, sweet, what kind of a man am I? So I went home. I went home and I did what men do and I'm like, I'm going to solve this. And I got out a piece of paper and I got a pen and I was just, and after about an hour, I'm like, I'm screwed. Like, I can't fix this. And then, you know, the immediate response to that is, God, are you in control? I've only done what I thought you were leading me to do. I've had good motives. Are you in control? It tests my faith. And James says, consider it joy because the testing of your faith will produce endurance and perseverance. We'll begin to really understand um, what it means to follow the stormy north side. I was in uh, Burundi and met a guy named Emmanuel. And Emmanuel was fascinating. He's a church planter. You heard him last December come and talk for a couple weeks. Sharpest, one of the sharpest guys I've ever met. And he's a, he's a church planter in Africa there in Burundi. And he was talking for an hour about his church plant. All I was thinking about is what wise advice am I going to give him on church planting? Um, and then about an hour in, he says, you Americans are really funny. You, you're ty- all type A personalities, and you think you have an, a word of advice for everything, and you think you can solve everything. And I'm in the middle of, like, you know, my internal thoughts. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. I don't know Burundi. I don't know. I mean, this guy was designed to reach his country. I have no co- clue what's going on. I mean, I'm ridiculously American with my quick fixes. And we Americans don't understand that God takes us through circumstance. We're always looking for the quick fix solution. It's really hard for us to suffer. We're Tasmanian devils, you know, like we, you know, just, and God's like, slow down. It'll be okay. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. You know why? Because they lack the money and the political resources to, to try to change the circumstances they're in. So they have to trust on God. Why is it hard for the rich? Because instead of trusting on God, they, they trust power, control, money to fix the circumstances that they should be waiting on the Lord to take them through. Blessed are the meek. Joseph, if he had had money, would have never let himself get thrown, or power, would have never let himself get thrown in a well, that years and years and years and years later, he was able to say that whole set of circumstances that took me into slavery, into jail, all of this was God's plan for good. My brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He wanted me to go through that because ultimately he had a bigger plan here. If he had had any control, he wouldn't have gone through those initial circumstances. Last thing, and we'll do this quickly. Uh, We need to learn to rejoice we need to take things with thanksgiving. When we are weak, we are strong. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things for good for those he has called according to his purpose. When circumstances are like this, 
it really forces us to go, do we believe it? And are we willing to wait all the way for the end of the story? We wait for a year, we wait for two years, nothing's changing, don't have the win yet. God must not be in control. He doesn't really work all things for good. Jesus was willing to go to death for something on the other side of death, that he was going to be exalted with God in heaven. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. I hate saying this to us because we don't like to hear it, but Christianity for 2,000 years has always been a religion that says we ought to be willing to suffer all things in this life for the win after this life. And I think the church for 20, 30 years got into saying, if you do these principles, then you will win. You'll have a healthier business. You'll be prosperous. You'll have a better marriage. Your kids will never walk away from the faith. You will, and everything we did, the sacrifices we made, were to have this wonderful, magnanimous, um, cheerio life. And it's very American, but for 2,000 years it was, um, you don't get much to look forward to, and then you die. And then it's really, really good. We don't want to hear that. It really hits us in the gut, doesn't it? What if God's calling you to have a desert life where you wander around in the desert and then you die? But it's his will. What if God's on the other team? We all come in here with things that are testing our faith. I know you have something testing your faith. I've got things that are testing my faith. But do you understand that it's a test of your faith? Will you, in the midst of that, care enough, have your heart flipped over, upside down, that you will do all that you need to do to learn how to stand up in that, to get the encouragement you need, to find the experts, to find the people that can speak into your life, to learn how to prioritize things so that you will do that really well. Um, May we respond well when our, our faith is tested. May we realize that even with good motives, we can sometimes be wrong. Um, The worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing one last song, and we're going to skip the prayer um, and just say amen uh, in lieu of time. So if you can, maybe you can just quiet your heart and think of where God's trying to talk to you. What have you heard that you need, already heard that you need to listen to? Let's respond well to the test of our faith. Amen. God bless.